Let's bow before the great I am. Father Yahweh, the creator of everything, Father, we uh, come to you to, today to worship you, Father, and to uh, learn of your truth. And um, I ask that uh, my words today are your words, Father, and that uh, they are from you to your people. Um, I also ask that uh, you just allow all of us to be humble in your sight, to learn more of you, and to just draw closer to you. We ask all this through your son, Yahshua. Hallelujah. Well, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I guess you could almost call this a continuation of the sermon I had, a little bit anyway, on uh, UFOs and demons, kind of a weird subject, but there's some overlap here, um, so I wanted you to be aware of that. As we see times change, it should be a wake-up call for us to evaluate our lives and get serious about the word. How fragile life can be and how quickly we can leave this world is a scary thing. It happens so fast that many don't even have a chance to say goodbye to their loved ones. Judgment is coming for us, and it gets closer by the day. It is said there is a tombstone near Windsor Castle that reads, Pause, my friend, as you walk by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. A visitor was overheard adding these lines, To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. We, of course, understand that we're sleeping in the grave after death, awaiting the judgment. But the question does hold true. We need to make our own path, not follow the path of others. We stand alone before Yahweh at judgment. Every year, natural disasters kill an estimated 60,000 people globally. That is the seating capacity of the Jones AT&T Stadium in Lubbock, Texas. The city of Aleppo in Syria on October 11, 1138, experienced one of the worst earthquakes in history. The city virtually collapsed, and an estimated 230,000 people died. But this pales in comparison to the worst disaster ever recorded, other than maybe the Great Flood. In 1931, 24 inches of rainfall as well as melting snow triggered a flood on the Yangtze River in China that killed an upward estimated 3.7 million people. That's hard to fathom. This is 1 million. 3.7 million people in one disaster. We live in a pretty sheltered and blessed country, don't we? But how long will all this last? The Messiah told us in Matthew 24, 21, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. This is a shocking statement. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. I used to think that dealt with nuclear power. I don't think that anymore, and I'll get to that here in a minute. The world is changing rapidly before our eyes. The COVID pandemic changed many of our perspectives. We can now look at the world through pre-COVID and post-COVID lenses. We went through a very weird time of 
callousness, social distancing, and masks made everyone look at each other as possible conduits of disease and death. Four in ten people struggled with depression. According to NBC News, emergency room visits for adolescent suicide attempts soared in 2020, especially among girls. There was a 22.3% spike in ER trips for potential suicides by children aged 12 to 17 in summer 2020 compared to 2019. COVID took its toll on the mental health of people all over the world. People have somewhat changed as a result, and I'm sure you have noticed it. Morality and decency has been on the decline as well. Many on the left have used this as a time to exploit and push political agendas. I think for many of us who believe in the Bible and long for morality and justice, it just feels like the old America we were used to has left the station. And we're standing there wondering what just happened, right? That's kind of how I feel. In today's message, I hope to attempt to make it at least a, a little sense of all this change that is increasing rapidly. Change has been in the air for quite some time, hasn't it? Barack Obama campaigned on the message of hope and change, remember? At face value, that sounds great, doesn't it? Hope? Who doesn't want hope, right? We all want hope. And change? A change for the better, right? That sounds like a good thing. I don't think this is the kind of change implied by many of the global politicians and leaders that are bent on removing biblical standards and replacing them with globalist ideas. The whole idea of climate change is being pushed on us in every direction. This is the conduit they seem to use to push our world into a different direction, a new world, a global direction where a new world order will tell us if we can burn wood in our fireplaces, have chickens, cows, guns, or even be able to plant gardens, a world where talks of depopulation could trigger even more pandemics, and Yahweh knows what else. We are facing sweeping changes of our very way of life. Remember, it wasn't that long ago our current president, president wanted to force vaccinations on Americans. And if it wasn't for a small few on the Supreme Court, it almost happened. That's scary if you think about it. Now we are learning more and more regarding the vaccine and the dangers associated with it. So now when I hear the word change, it makes me very uneasy. That blanket statement could mean anything. You got to ask yourself, what change? What are you wanting to change? Too many people just go along with it. Some of the change that has happened in the last couple of years has left many of us with only change. I find it interesting that Yahweh says, quote, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. We can read that in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Mankind changes, Yahweh does not change. Something very sinister is brewing in the scientific world that you may not be aware of. Many of you have heard of the hydrogen collider in Geneva, Switzerland. I know some maybe. The deeper one goes into this subject, the scarier it gets. I touched on it in an earlier sermon that I did about a year ago that called uh, UFOs and the Cosmic Powers of Darkness, and I urge you to look up that sermon on our YouTube page, because I don't believe believers are ready for what's coming on this planet. They're being deceived by Hollywood and the media. Um, Luke 21, 26 says, men's hearts 
failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. Hearts failing them for fear. So for those of you that have no idea what I'm talking about, scientists have built what is called a hydrogen collider in Switzerland that speeds up particles and smashes them together. This machine is the world's largest machine ever built. It is 575 feet below ground and runs 17 miles long and creates a massive gravitational pull. The objective is multifaceted, but primarily they are attempting to understand what they call dark matter. Now, dark matter is the theory that there is something else in the universe that binds everything together. It is also called the God particle. You and I would call it the Holy Spirit, right? But science is trying to explain it. They believe by tapping into dark matter, they can tap into multiple dimensions of reality. Before his death, the physicist Stephen Hawking said, quote, the God particle found by CERN could destroy the universe. Remember, Yahshua tells us, if those days were not shortened, no flesh would be saved. I think the translation, Moffat, says saved alive. The Higgs boson, another term for the God particle, could become unstable at very high energy levels and have the potential to trigger a catastrophic vacuum decay, which would cause space and time to collapse, and we would not have any warning of the dangers. That's uh, what Stephen Hawking went about to say. Sergio Bertolosi, former director for research and scientific computing of CERN, made headlines when he told a British tabloid the super collider could open otherworldly doors to another dimension for, quote, a very tiny lapse of time, mere fractions of a second. However, that may be just enough time to peer into the open door, either by getting something out of it or sending something into it. Of course, after this tiny moment, he goes on to say, the door would shut again, bringing us back to our normal four-dimensional world. It would be a major leap in our vision of nature. And of course, there would be no risk to the stability of the world, naturally. Yeah. I find it really troubling that the logo of CERN has a series of sixes in it. That's pretty weird, isn't it? I mean, just, just something about that's just weird. <laughs> I don't know, right? Well, then it gets weirder. You would think since CERN is a scientific institution, which typically prides itself with not being religious, but scientific, chose as its mascot a Hindu goddess. But not just any Hindu goddess, just outside of its headquarters building sits an ancient statue, an idol, of Shiva, the goddess of destruction. Revelation 9.11 says, They had a king over them, the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is destroyer. Very strange, isn't it? The location of Geneva, Switzerland is also something of a mystery. CERN is uh, partially situated in what is called St. Genus Poly. The name Poly comes from the Latin Apollicum. And some believe that in Roman times a temple existed in honor of Apollo. 
in this area. And the people who lived there believe that it is a gateway to the underworld. I do want to point out that this is conjecture, and I, I couldn't prove this one way or the other. Um, maybe more study or research needs to be done on that particular location. I find it very interesting that we see a connection to the god Shiva, though, the destroyer, the same as Apollyon mentioned in Revelation 9. And isn't it just weird? Why would they put that out in front of their buildings? Just very bizarre. The Guardian had this to say in an article called, quote, a temple to mystery and imagination. The huge underground complex of CERN is almost entirely hidden from its buildings or matter-of-fact industrial sheds or concrete bunkers with none of the obvious allure or artistry of the Great Pyramid of Cheops, the Parthenon, Chartres Cathedral, or the Eiffel Tower. And yet here is a place of mystery and imagination, as well as mathematics, physics, and imaginative engineering that promises to take us on a journey into the realm of the spiritual as well as the purely scientific and rational. In this sense, CERN is a modern equivalent of the great temples and cathedrals of the past. It aims to find the point at which creation began. God only knows what scientists will divine in the months to come. Will the origin and structure of the universe prove to be the product of some divine being, a colossal figment of our own imagination, a mirror of some parallel universe, or a quintessence of stardust, ultimately unknowing and incomprehensible even as we hold it in the palm of our hands? Ultimately, CERN scientists may come up against a truly mysterious nothingness, the very opposite of solid architecture, and discover that perhaps we cannot ever truly understand or come to terms with the elusive core and generator of the universe. This, by the way, is part of the reason, although expressed very differently, why the Temple of Jerusalem, one of the great buildings of legend and religious faith, was based around the physical emptiness incomprehensible to the worldly Romans who destroyed the great building in AD 80. The temple, as laterally rebuilt by Herod the Great, might have been a mighty structure of stone, marble, and cedar, yet its Holy of Holies, the shrine known only to high priests, contained nothing material or tangible whatsoever. What it did house, though, was the silent spirit of G.O.D., Many of CERN's scientists are well aware of the connection between their great underground temple and those religions ancient and modern, and just as the quest for God or gods encouraged the very first great works of architecture, so CERN laid out up to 100 meters below ground like some inverted latter-day Stonehenge has been constructed on a massive scale. This image was taken June 24, 2016, directly over CERN as scientists began a new awake experiment. An article on Yahoo News entitled, quote, Has CERN opened a portal to another dimension at the Large Hydron Collider? The article starts by saying, Either CERN has actually opened a portal to another dimension, or there's some seriously weird clouds over the Large Hydron Collider this month. They also quote someone saying, quote, This insane ball of energy is located over the LHC, and some were reporting they could see faces in it. The Scottish Sun said in June 28, 2016, these incredible photos taken above CERN's large hydrogen collider have provoked dramatic conspiracy theories and stoked fears that the new portals are being opened. Does this sound too far-fetched? Because don't you worry, we got independent fact-checkers on the case. Snopes said this was false. 
There was a storm over Geneva in June 2016, and nature photographer uh, Christophe Surez captured images from the event. The photographs do not portray CERN ripping open a portal to another dimension. They depict lightning and clouds from a storm. So rest easy, everybody. Rest easy. Snopes is on the case. Nothing to see here. Is it possible CERN could trigger what we see in Revelation 9, verse 1? If you turn there with me. Pretty weird stuff in Revelation. Not going to lie. A lot of weird creatures, too. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. Hmm, sounds eerily similar here, what we just saw. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of Elohim on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of a sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts look like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. These are some weird-looking creatures. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had stings, or they had tails with stingers, like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had a king over them, the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek Apollyon, that is destroyer. Weird stuff, huh? They have plans to build an upgraded high-luminosity uh, hydron collider three times the size of the current one, and they hope to have it operational by 2027. In fact, I've heard they're building two, but they're going to put the bigger one there as well. Um, so if messing around with Yahweh's creation isn't enough, we're also messing with Yahweh's divine order. The United Church of Christ in Costa Mesa, California, flies an LGBTQ pride flag, performs same-sex marriages, and of course, naturally, has a drag queen reading event. The church will have another reading in October and a tea party in November, and they claim to read the same Bible you and I read, by the way. Puzzling, huh? We see an ever-increasing hostility towards the Bible and the teachings contained in its pages and callousness. With the event of smartphones and the internet, mankind has moved rapidly towards immorality like a moth to a flame. Most, most news today is propagandized towards anti-biblical messaging. I have to ask sometime, is there any good news? You ever wonder that? You watch the news? It's always bad news. They're desensitizing us. Communication and smartphones have sped up knowledge and information, but also disinformation and immorality. We don't know what a boy or a girl is anymore. And if you ask the question, you're met with, are you a biologist? So we need to be biologists now to, to decide if, if a, we have a boy or a girl. I mean, this stuff is just getting really bizarre and very sick. 
Without Yahweh intervening, man spirals out of control. Luke wrote in chapter 18, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Faith or pistis in Greek has the literal meaning of faith or belief, and in front of pistis is the definite article. So it has the meaning of the faith, not just any faith, but the one faith. We're seeing it, it's receding more and more. The problem is man's nature is not a nature of good, but evil. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? <coughs> Sorry. In chapter 17, verse 9, the Hebrew uses the word we'enush, which doesn't mean just wicked, but it has the t- uh, meaning of desperately wicked, or to be weak, or sick. It goes on to end with a question in the Hebrew, humi yedainu, who can know it? Satan explored of Yahweh, didn't they? We were created by Yahweh to have one job, and one job only. Obey Yahweh and worship him. One goes with the other. And right away we failed because of our own arrogance. We know more than Yahweh. The forbidden fruit will make us like Yahweh, and our eyes will be opened. This is pure idolatry of self because of our wicked heart, our wicked nature that we always fight against. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says it this way. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear Elohim and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. The Hebrew says mitzvotah, which always means his commandments. In every instance, you look at that word in the Hebrew text. And what do we do with his commandments? We keep them. In fact, it's more than keep. In the Hebrew, it's shamar. It means to preserve and to guard them. So we're not just keeping, we're guarding them. That's how important they are. We preserve them and we guard them. They're important. They're what we do. That's what we were created to do is obey him. There is a reason scripture is descriptive when dealing with his Sabbaths and his feasts. Um, When we fear Yahweh, we show him respect, right? When we respect him, we obey him. When we obey him, we show our love for him. By obeying him, we are forced to humble ourselves. Children will disobey their parents when they do not have a healthy fear for their parents, right? Um, The fear of getting spanked or disciplined is vital. The number one rule for you parents out there that can't seem to get your children under control is follow through. If you say something, mean it. Of course, you don't need to discipline out of, you know, hostility. You should discipline in love, but also authority. And when you say it, you mean it. You'll find a common thread in the scriptures with fear tied to obedience. Notice Psalms 19 verse 9. The fear of Yahweh is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of Yahweh are firm, and all of them are righteous. In 1 Samuel 12, 14, if you fear Yahweh and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of Yahweh, and if, you both, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow Yahweh, your Elohim, it will be well. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother. Paul makes an important distinction in Romans 8.5 regarding two choices. 
we have as carnal man. There's, just, there's two, he says. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. It's like the red or blue pill in the movie Matrix. The first choice, choice number one, is live according to our flesh, which is the choice 99% of people make today. This is idolatry. It's elevating ourself above Yahweh. And then we have choice number two, live according to the spirit, which most people don't do because it's a lot harder of the two choices, but it has the richest reward, of course. Choice two is the way of obedience and submission to our creator. Sadly, many church doctrines have been born out of choice number one. And sadly, these church doctrines have contributed to the breakdown of society and a healthy fear of almighty Yahweh. Here are just a few. Teachings condoning divorce. It's much easier on the flesh to just give up or possibly trade in your spouse for someone you think is better. Lust and temptation, of course, play a role here. There are so many teachings from pastors and teachers that I've seen condoning divorce, adding to the destruction of the family. And I'm not talking about extreme cases of blatant adultery or, or abuse. How many of these teachers have contributed to these broken families? Seems like anything goes. Spiritualize anything away. The rapture doctrine. We'll be out of here before the bad stuff happens, they say. So many teachings are predicated on the, on the uh, idea that we're not going to have to go through the tribulation. This will cause unfathomable chaos before Yahshua returns, as most will not be ready for what is to come. Like we just read some of it. And their hearts and faith will fail them when they are not whisked away to heaven. Matthew 24 is clear on the chronology here. It says, immediately after the tribulation, the Son of Man will appear from heaven and gather his elect. Read it for yourself. It's clear. How about when we die? We just go to heaven? Sounds great, doesn't it? Just bypass the judgment altogether. My friend in seminary years ago, his good friend, we talked about the Bible a lot, told me when I asked him, where does judgment fit on all this when you're just going right to heaven? And he told me, oh, it's simple. We just come down right before the judgment. We're going to get our physical bodies, and then we're going to be judged. And I'm like, wow, that sounds simple. <laughs> I know it doesn't. I'm still scratching my head to this day on that one. But John 3.13, again, is clear. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Again, easy, easy street. We as human beings love the easy road. How about grace alone? The idea that the Messiah is our everything. The Messiah, he's our Sabbath. He's our, he's our rest. Um, he's my clean and unclean food. It doesn't matter if I'm eating it, it's not good for me. He's still my, you know. He did it so I don't have to, of course. All you have to do is believe on him for salvation. It'd be like telling my son to wash the car, and he responds to me, you're my car wash, Dad. Clean your room, son. You're my cleaning service, Dad. Son, take out the trash. You're my trash man, Dad. I mean, doesn't that sound ridiculous? Isn't that like, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually humiliating in, in a way. I mean, it's, it's humiliating to the, to the creator of our universe. All these doctrines are the direct result of category one, the easy road, and have contributed to the heart of man today and the collapse that we're seeing all around us. So I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think plowing a field is easy? Just think about it for a second. Is plowing, plowing a field easy? 
Yahshua used the analogy of plowing in regards to following him in Luke 9.62. I do. Thank you. I thought she was bringing me water. Need that too. <clears throat> no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of Elohim. If simple belief was enough, why does Yahshua use an analogy of hard work, by the way? Now, plowing a field may not be so bad these days. In a John Deere 7R350, which was the tractor of the year in 2022, by the way. This thing has 388 horsepower and is equipped with a variable geometry turbo. I think my truck's got one of those. The creature comforts are second to none. It comes equipped with a new active comfort seat. Now, this isn't your granddad's old spring seat. Inside the left-hand armrest are seat settings, including two massage functions, a brace of heating and cooling, powers, and lumbar support. In the roof is a new 6.5 touchscreen radio display that makes phone and audio connection simpler and takes the functions out of the main screen. But one thing that's better than one touchscreen is two touchscreens. And this bad boy has more than one. This rig can plow a field in style and comfort, all while getting a shiatsu massage. But don't get the wrong impression here. The kind of plowing Yahshua was talking about wasn't with the John Deere 7R350. It's with this. The ox-drawn plow was constructed with two gauges, light and high. The strong plow went first, cutting the furrows, while the smaller plow turned up the earth behind it. Once the field had been plowed, then the workers with hoes broke up the soil clumps and seeded the rows. This guy decided to hitch up a camel with his ox, however unequally yoked this looks like here, but I guess it worked for him. <laughs> well, that looks like it's like, wait, an angle? I really do feel sorry for that cow. I don't know, I might feel sorry for the camel. Look at that. That's crazy. <clears throat> so this begs the question, if Yahshua is our everything, why isn't he plowing the field for us? Why isn't he our plow? Why, didn't he, why did he use a very labor-intensive job to depict following him? He could have used any analogy for just believing on him. For many Bible believers today, following him is like the guy smiling on the left side, the John Deere 7R350. The easy road is not in our future, however. I can assure you the true assembly never had it easy if you trace them for the last 2,000 years. And we, as we head towards the finish line, it's only going to get harder according to Scripture. Gold tried by fire is the analogy used of those who uh, possess the faith of Messiah. In 1 Peter 1.7, we read, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold that perisheth, though it is proved by fire, may be found unto praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Yahshua, Messiah. Revelation 12 tells the story of the assembly from the first century till now. Hardships are the theme here. Those expecting easy street better start reading the Bible for what it says rather than what someone tells them it says. Verse 13, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. 
But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth, and the dragon was enraged with the, with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of Elohim and have the testimony of Yahshua the Messiah. Some of the points we see here are the woman denotes the assembly, gune in the Hebrew, the child, Yahshua. The assembly is given two wings of an eagle so she could be nourished in the wilderness away from Satan possibly maybe transported like Elia. But we know Satan obviously finds them and creates some sort of a flood or persecution. Many commentaries um, say that this is all figurative, trying to extract the papacy. Somehow they put the papacy in all this. I believe this is describing actual events that will happen in the latter days. Something happens with the earth that swallows up the water, possibly a large fissure crack in the earth. I don't know. We also see Satan going for the rest of the assembly's offspring. This offspring keep the commandments. That really narrows it down throughout the history of the assembly, doesn't it? Does that mean that not all are taken to the same place of safety in the wilderness? Could it be speaking of different locations of believers? Something to think think about, I guess. Um, We do not have to guess what to do before Yahshua comes to judge the world. He gives us clues as to what will happen. Our very Savior, he is giving us the words here. He's telling us what's going to happen. Matthew 24, 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Not even he knows, but only the Father. So obviously there's no three in one here. He doesn't even know. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. As it were in the days of Noah. Now think about that. Because that is very relevant to what's happening here in the rest of the narrative. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken, and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know what day your master will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> Here are some important uh, points I take away from this. Number one, we don't know when Yahshua is coming back. 
Yahshua does not even know when he's coming back. Only Yahweh, two beings, two separate beings. Yahweh in charge of everything. He, he's the one that knows. It's business as usual as people will be living it up, uh, not prepared for what's to come upon the earth. I think for all of us going through the COVID pandemic, it kind of maybe made this a little more real, didn't it? It seemed like one day we we're normal. The next day, everything changed. I think it's a, it's a precursor. One person will be taken and the other left is not mentioning a rapture, but be putting to death. The flood did not take these people away to safety. The flood killed them. Imagine half the people you know perishing. This will be like the coming of Yahshua. It says here the master should be a good master and have good and food ready for when tribulation comes. The reference of leadership here seems to be the narrative. Pastors and those teaching the word, getting believers ready and prepared, not extorting them for their own gain. I believe this is also dual, spiritual food, yes, but also physical food, preparing for hard times. Teachers should be teaching the word of Yahweh and preparing the way for the Messiah, just like John the Baptist did 2,000 years ago. Teaching people to fear Yahweh and obey him, treating Yahshua like the magic genie in a bottle, like you see today, is only setting people up for chaos as tribulation draws closer. Those who are complacent, Yahshua will remove. A cross-reference is found in Luke 12.42 for those who want to read Luke's account later. But the world is changing as a result of man's mind changing. And as we discussed earlier, we see a sin-sick society that is getting worse by the day. The Apostle Paul makes reference to this warped or reprobate mind of man in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of Elohim is being revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about Elohim and visible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew Elohim, they neither glorified him as Elohim nor gave thanks to him but their thinking became futile and their foolish harks, mortal Elohim for image made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, Elohim gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about Elohim for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Because of this, Elohim gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of Elohim, so Elohim gave them over to a reprobate mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of Elohim, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. 
They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know Elohim's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Verse 28 in the KJV says, Elohim gave them over to a reprobate mind. It's a very interesting term. The literal Greek says he gave up them. Paradidomi in Greek means to hand over. It's a scary thing to think Yahweh would give up on someone, isn't it? The KJV uses the word reprobate for the Greek word adakamos. This word has the meaning of not standing the test, not approved, sterile soil, unfit for something, a castaway, rejected, worthless, literally or morally. When Yahweh gives someone over to a reprobate mind, their mind is unfit to be his. It is rejected. When you create a vacuum, what happens? Something fills it, right? So if Yahweh rejects someone, what fills it? Satan. I believe what we are seeing happen today is a simple process. Yahweh is removing himself one by one from the masses of this world. He will no longer be their help. He will no longer bless them. His spirit flees from them. The light disappears and darkness enters. They have rejected him and he is rejecting them. And as a result, their mind loses all sense of morality and a moral compass. And they are left to their own devices. We see an interesting correlation with Romans 1 and an example of this reprobate mind as well in 2 Timothy 3. And if you would turn there with me, I'd like to start in verse 1 to unpack the narrative Paul is giving to Timothy here. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of Elohim, having a form of righteousness but denying its power, having nothing to do, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected, but they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone." So let's drill down a little farther. Who was Janus and Jambres? We do not see these names associated with Moses anywhere in the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. However, it seems Paul is giving us a little more insight into the two men here. The sorcerers, the magicians, countering Moses and Aaron. Jewish tradition says that Janus and Jambres left with the Israelites and were instrumental in leading the people into the worship of the golden calf. There was a book that existed during the first to the third centuries called the Apocryphon of Janus and Jambres. But no complete copy of this is known today, only fragments of uh, Greek manuscripts on papyrus. The Qumran community, the ones who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, refer to one of the magicians by the name of Janus, interestingly. This Apocryphon claims to be written by Pharaoh's officials, Janus and Jambres, sons of Balaam, son of Petrophres, 
an Egyptian priest of Apis. In this extra-biblical story, Janice and Jamries discuss sexual morality. Both agree that marriage should be done away with. We see the same push today with the assault on marriage, don't we? Amazing how the warped mind of man works, especially if you are controlled by the evil one. It seems they embody the very description, these two men, of a reprobate and the reason Paul mentions them in relation to it. This reprobate mind is becoming more prevalent today. Things we couldn't comprehend not long ago seem to just happen overnight. The rise of transgenderism in such a short time is very troubling and certainly a sign of the confusion and perversion in our culture. This is running so rampant, some stores are putting in third gender-neutral bathrooms. Abortions and the murdering of the innocent are becoming common. One in four women have had an abortion by the age of 45. It is so bad that an African-American, African-American women in New York City have had more abortions than babies born. Since 2019, New York law allows for abortion all the way to full term. Pedophilia and child sex trafficking is becoming an epidemic and is far more common among homosexuals. In 1995, the Homosexual Magazine Guide said, quote, we can be proud that the gay movement has been home to the few voices who have had the courage to say out loud that children are naturally sexual and deserve the right to sexual expression with whatever they choose. The article went on to say, instead of fearing being labeled pedophiles, we must proudly proclaim that sex is good, including children's sexuality. We must do it for the children's sake. The National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association, NLGJA, man, they they love the acronyms, recently posted that although homosexuals are less than 2% of the population, three-fourths of the people who decide the content of the front page of the New York Times are homosexual, Reisman wrote. Hollywood and our media are pushing the envelope of depravity. Movies are being used to propagandize children to immorality. The world is sick and it's only going to get worse. A growing number in our political system are pushing the levels of acceptance, and more and more are giving in to the narratives. We, of course, do not know how long before tribulation breaks out, but we can see that much is lining up with prophecy. And I I do have to say something for the young children listening to this. I do feel for you. This isn't an easy message to listen to, and I apologize for that. I really do. Um, But this is what we're given. This is the time we live. But I want you to not be scared because we serve Yahshua. He is our salvation. Revivals do happen, and maybe Yahweh's time is not yet. Since Yahshua died, every generation thought it was their generation, didn't they? We still live in a world of relative. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When, you, when will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. A troublemaker and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks maliciously with his eye, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart. He always stirs up conflict. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. 
So how can you prepare? Food shortages are a very real thing, especially in this post-COVID world. Wars and nuclear attacks are also very real, threat, and they're very real threats to our way of life. How about natural disasters and events like earthquakes, floods, or t- tornadoes? Massive blizzards that could cut power or stop the transportation of food. Scripture warns us of coming weather changes from Yahweh, not man, by the way. Yahweh will speed things up. This isn't climate change. This is Yahweh. They're going to label it that. But we know, we, we know what's happening. Here is what I feel you can do practically. First and foremost, get ready spiritually. Read and study and change your life. Keep Yahweh's commandments, Sabbaths, feast days, eat a biblically clean lifestyle. I feel many of you are already on this road. And if you're not, we have hundreds of teachings here at this ministry that can help you in in this area. But what about physically? This may be more foreign to most of you listening to this. Here's my recommendation. Build a bug out bag in case you had to leave your house. Every car should have at least a small bag containing essential items in case you get stranded. Even FEMA recommends Americans should have a disaster kit on hand. And here's what I would include. A backpack to hold the contents, of course. A tourniquet, an Israeli bandage, band-aids, an N95 mask. Um, A tarp, 10 by 12 tarp, waterproof. Emergency sleeping bag. You can look up Bivy, I think, if you look at B-I-V-Y, Bivy sack, you can get one of those. Paracord, a couple days worth of dry food. Bottle of wa- some water bottles. A water straw, so you can drink out of um, any water source. A knife, a poncho, a compass, LED flashlight with charged batteries. Extra socks, you don't think about that, but if you're moving around. You don't want to have wet socks, a fire starter of some kind, and work gloves. But a more elaborate bug-out bag for a longer period of time might include these items, a stainless steel bottle that you can carry water and set on a fire to to, uh, boil the water, a small tent, a small fishing kit. I'd urge people to learn how to fish. And a fishing kit, you really don't need much, just some fishing line, a couple lures, if you uh, have a folding shovel in your kit, you could dig up some worms. Emergency hand crank radio to know what's going on. Maybe some camo netting for cover, a sleeping bag. Vacuum sealed seeds can last 10 years or more. I know this sounds crazy, right? But these are, these are things that we can practically do. And if we don't need it, we don't need it. But if we do, we have it and it's ready to go. So now what can you do at home? Right, your house right now. What can you do? Because I mean, you're seeing people all all over take this kind of stuff serious. They didn't, they didn't take this seriously before COVID. Now you're seeing it. I'm even seeing articles in popular magazines talking about these things. Build raised beds. Oh, that was the ant one. There we go. Jess and I built one last year, and it worked amazing. It was like our personal produce department. Uh, we tried to make it look nice and fit into the front of our house. We used two-by-fours and metal to build ours. We added PVC pipe hoops for the top so you could cover with netting. And we got quite a bit of produce in our first year. There's a lot of information on how to build them and fill them online. You'll want to raise, uh, want raised bed soil and 
I uh, urge you to look up uh, Huga Culture. That's what it's called. H-U-G-E-L-K-U-L-T-U-R. Uh, raised beds. This is a method we used, and it worked great. If you're into canning, like my wife, this is a great way to store produce, especially if you have a large garden. Because, I mean, some of these gardens, some of these tomato plants, I mean, they'll just, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Let's say you only have an apartment. I know there's people that watch this, they just have a small apartment. Most apartments have porches that you can add planters to. I would fill as many planters as you can. Look up container gardening for more information. You can even do container gardening indoors. Of course, we believe this next year is a sabbatical, so maybe it would be a great year to uh, start building some of these beds for when you, can, when you can plant. For those of you that have a little land and the ability to have chickens, then I would recommend them. Jess and I have had chickens on and off for most of our marriage. You can buy or build small coops called chicken tractors that allow you to move the coop around your property and protect the, the uh, chickens. Having chickens will also provide fertilizer for your gardens and raised beds. If you have land with trees, then installing a wood stove is also a good idea. You can uh, cook on them and provide heat in the event the power goes out or there is no more power. Oil, water, that's important. But knowledge is the most important survival tool. There are many YouTube channels that have great tips on how to survive in the event of a catastrophe. I know I've watched Bear Grylls several times. He actually has a lot of practical survival techniques. Spend time educating yourself on how to survive. Knowing edible plants in your area or how to build a shelter or even fish and hunt are all valuable skills that are worth knowing. Learning basic first aid also is valuable and something you'll probably use sometime in your lifetime. Now the disclaimer for all this. You think I'm, I'm a crackpot, you know, I'm, a, I'm just one of these survivalists. Um, that's not the case at all, and I'm sure my wife will tell you that. We cannot save ourselves when tribulation comes on the earth. I want to make that clear. It will only be by the grace of Yahweh and through faith in him that we are still living during these dark times. We see examples, however, of preparing all through the Bible. His word lays out the groundwork for the believer regarding things that will come to pass. So we are not caught off guard. I'm not saying you need to build a 30-foot deep underground bunker, but have practical survival skills that you can use for yourself or others in the event that the world plunges into hard times. Or maybe just be able to help your fellow man in a car accident or being stranded possibly. People 50 years ago didn't rely on the grocery stores like we rely on them today. People 50 years ago had skills that we just don't have today, collectively. You know, I think about my grandfather. I really do think sometimes he, he was the great, they say the greatest generation, but I just think of the things that, that he would do. I mean, he, he, he wasn't, uh, I mean, he would try anything. He'd build anything. And I think that's the mindset we have to have, is we got we to gotta be able to put our minds to something, not be afraid to tackle projects. Because if things get bad, we're going to need to know how to do these things. But I'd like to leave you with one scripture from Nahum. Hold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So, hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. We need to take refuge in, in our Father. We need to um, work on bettering ourselves and become closer to, um, to our Father. As uh, we know, our Savior is...
eventually going to come. So hallelujah.